Greetings, dear listeners. It's been a while. Shadi's been busy promoting his book, and I have been on the road far too much. It was really good to finally get back together and record an episode this week. It feels really good to be spending time talking to a close friend about what's going on in the world. This episode, we start talking about Twitter and Elon Musk's takeover. What's Elon up to? Is he going to save Twitter or doom it? And would losing Twitter be such a bad thing anyway? In the second half of the conversation, we turn to the broader political dynamics in the country. Are woke excesses setting the stage for a reaction, especially among more socially conservative brown people? Shadi feels like it might be coming. If you're not yet a paid subscriber, head on over to wisdomofcrowds.live slash subscribe and get access to bonus episodes of the show. We hope to count you among our growing number of supporters. On to the show. Listen, Shadi, uh, it's been a while. It's good to get to hear your voice again like this. Um, yeah. Listen, I, 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 you and I texted a bit earlier this week about what's on our minds and whatnot. I, I think, I think I'd like to, to maybe just unpack some of my own, and not unpack because it's it's well packed and ordered, but just sort of walk my own self to an opinion about Twitter. I feel like we've done this before, but now I think it's a it's another moment with okay, uh, yeah, with Elon yeah. taking over, and and you seem optimistic about Elon taking over. Like, well, you're, you're I heartened. was until I started seeing what he was tweeting. Well, I so I haven't seen Twitter this weekend, more or less. What was he tweeting? He appears to be entertaining conspiracy theory about the assault on Nancy Pelosi's husband in San Francisco. Oh no way! Wow. What what did he what did he tweet? Yeah, he he made some like veiled reference to like, um, oh, um, isn't there a tiny possibility that the story isn't what we what it seems to be? And then he linked to this, I guess, right wing site that seems to dabble in conspiracy theories called the Santa Monica Observer. Oh boy! So he linked directly to that article, which was pretty conspiratorial. What's I the mean, conspiracy? I, how, how did how did uh oh you don't know what the conspiracy is is this a, a setup by democrats to brain the speaker's own husband in order to set up republicans is that the conspiracy well, that, see you're not thinking creatively enough that's <laughs> your problem that is my problem okay f as far as i can tell and you know we're only saying this just because it's out there otherwise you know i obviously wouldn't want to encourage this no no of, no you're um, quoting elon musk i mean i, I, don't, I don't think we have that much of a <laughs> That much of a sway here that we can, you know. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. But I guess it has something to do with um, Nancy Pelosi's husband, Paul Pelosi, uh, being gay and oh. being on Grinder, Oh. And how he was doing something with someone in the home. And I, I mean, I don't, I did not know that there was some, I don't know how people come up with these rumors um i guess it is san francisco yeah but um <laughs> this is sort of stuff that goes on in san francisco but i mean look the the story is a little i mean okay what's it's weird about odd. it it's I mean, odd only in the sense of a security concern that i'm just surprised that nancy pelosi doesn't have stronger 
security and police presence around her residence. Like that to me is the interesting question. Like is someone asleep at the job? Is, um, did they kind of take something for granted that they lived in a safe neighborhood? I don't know, but apparently there's all these other, so, so I guess there is a third, there's apparently a third unknown person who, who answered the door Mm. or answer or responded to the police in some way. And that person hasn't been, that's the sort of thing. So yeah. I don't know, whatever. But that's that, exactly the kind of toehold that conspiracy theories need, right? Like, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah. yeah. It's perfect. Yeah. Perfect. Anyway. Absolutely perfect. Anyway. So, so but, uh, Elon's tweeting that. Interesting. Interesting. I mean, no, so, no, so, he, he's just asking questions. Right. So, so that, 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 so, so, so here's the question. Is Elon Musk a conspiracist or is this a like meta troll being like, this is the kind of freedom of speech that we need on the platform. And so I'm just going to throw it out there and you're just going to have to tolerate it. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Look, I think some of this is a power play. I think he likes fucking with people in this way. I mean, he even the fact that his bio now says Chief Twit. Yeah, yeah. He thinks this is all some big joke, I guess. You know, and I, I think he just wants to own the libs. I think Elon is someone and, you know, we all have to protect against this temptation. But liberals are an extremely annoying group of people. And I think it's easy for someone like Elon Musk, who's contrarian and, you know, is in love with his own sense of grandeur to just think like, oh, these people are really annoying. I'm going to just play with them and drive them crazy. I don't know if that's a good business strategy, though, because a lot of the people who use Twitter constantly are liberal elites. So but he may just not care. I mean, you get to a point that Elon Musk is at. And I guess you don't really have to care about anything in particular anymore. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I'm thinking about that. Like, I mean, you're that rich. And, okay, I don't know. What, what, is this, what does this amount to, this investment as a, you know, and I, I, t- I understand it's, he's not swimming in, in swimming pools full, with, full of gold. He's, you know, all of his wealth is tied up in stock of companies that, uh, you know, it's not liquid wealth. It's and it's a lot of the wealth is the valuation of the companies he owns, and he started. Um, but like, yeah, I mean, to a certain extent, you could imagine that he's just like, okay, fifty-five million. Like, bah, why not? Like, wait, that's all he paid. Oh, wait, what? Well, billion, 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 billion. Oh, put, yeah. <laughs> well, even even so, right? That tells you it's like you 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 misplace a. A consonant, and for someone like Elon Musk, it doesn't matter, right? <laughs> yeah. It's like, oh, what's fifty-five million billion? Oh, whatever, you know. And 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 so, I don't know, you know. It's it, it ends up being, yeah. I wonder. To be fair, he's not he's not that he's not that rich because his net worth is two hundred and twenty-three billion dollars. So if he's paying fifty-five billion for Twitter, that's about a, a quarter of his net worth. But I guess, like, once you. <laughs> yeah, you know, but that's it. It's like, how many billions do you actually need, right? For even a, a lifestyle like Elon Musk's, right? And, and Also, then, I don't know if you know this about him. He There's apparently also a rumor that Elon Musk doesn't actually live in a proper home. He just couch surfs with his friends. Well, Did I mean, you hear that, about this? I didn't hear about this, but that would that would also feed into this, right? Like imagine imagine you're that rich and you actually you actually don't care about any of that. Like you're not like handing it off to your children you're like when i die all this goes with me perhaps doesn't matter you know i'm just gonna play he has a lot of children though so he does have to i think provide for them he has 10 children and i think we talked about this in a previous episode he's committed 
to increasing the fertility rate. And he's, no, he Personally. actually, this is not a joke. He actually is quoted as saying, you know, I'm doing my part. Right. But he doesn't, so that's an interesting question. I mean, we're going to get in a weird rabbit hole here, but I wonder whether, you know, uh, what's the level of, of, of prosperity that a, uh, a father owes legally to offspring? I mean, you know, is it is there some sort of baseline that he has to provide and he doesn't have to provide a penny more or is it do do courts then rule like well you have 250 billion so i don't know you know each child needs to get 1 billion a year or something like that you no know? i don't think courts can do the latter because that would be very subjective yeah I so think it's there just has basically, to be just like a minimum, like provisional amount. Okay, so that has to be a, a rounding error, even compared to Twitter. You can have like six hundred children; it's still probably not amount that much, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I don't know how the legal situation works because he wasn't um, married, so he did, he's not like he's paying alimony. Because I don't think he was married in a right. lot of these circumstances. I think he was just going around and you know impregnating people, yeah, and then having you know. I don't think it was part of like building like family units per right, se right so right, i don't right. know how that is it how that you know affects the legal consideration right so it's just paternity suits so it's just like <laughs> it's amazing <laughs> amazing um uh, but uh well, well yeah like, uh, but on the bigger on the bigger issue of what this means for not just twitter but also um well like digital public square like part of what elon musk ostensibly is trying to do or at least he says this is he wants this to be a free public square where and then to kind of make it more unconstrained and a place where everyone feels comfortable going but i think by everyone he mostly means people who are on the right side of the spectrum who have been censored so he does in a self-conscious way want to undo what he thinks of as the censorship that the previous Twitter regime was engaging in. You, you saw his note to advertisers, though. I thought that was interesting. Did oh, you I see didn't it? see that, no. What yeah, I mean, he, he, you know, obviously he needs to, to calm them. And there have been a couple of good articles um, talking about basically, you know, the business model of any social media company um, and, and advertisers, their relationship to advertisers. And that's, a, you know, brands don't want to appear next to crazy stuff. Um, and so in his... In his um, in his note to advertise uh, in his note to advertisers, he he basically put it out there that you know the vision would be something like it's a welcoming place for everyone, where there are tools that exist that you know uh, you know you can actually build the kind of community and experience that is good for you and you know makes you happy, and you know that's that sort of runs against the idea of a public square where all voices are there. I mean, maybe not, right? Maybe the public square is just this thing where a bunch of people are talking to each other in groups, siphoned off to each other, but they're certainly not talking necessarily if that note is any indication of where things are going, you know, to each other. It's like creating a space for a bunch of cocoons rather than a single space, you know, uh, where the cocoons have to sort of, I don't know, interact or something like that. Um, yeah, well, that would be encouraging because, I, you know, I, I don't there has to be regulation. There has to be moderation. And I think, look, Twitter isn't a bureaucracy like the government is. But, you know, when you enter into a big company, you can't just rule like a petty dictator. 
there there's an entire Twitter staff and he didn't fire everyone. He fired a couple prominent folks, but you still have the deep state, if you will, of Twitter. Well, so, so, so right? yeah, look, uh, you know, I'm I'm a I'm a tech nerd, so I sort of follow a lot of this like tech stuff. Sometimes uh, there's this guy uh, who's really great, uh, John Gruber, who writes Daring Fireball. It's like a tech site. It's a Mac site, and he's just been writing for like 30 years. And I, it's it's uh, he's just very insightful and sort of standard liberal sensibilities dives into these things. But for about a couple of weeks, you know, when when Twitter uh, Elon started talking about um, cleaning house at Twitter. He surfaced a bunch of stuff and, you know, he's like, he's like I'm talking to a lot of people. He said, uh, whatever you, you think about, you know, the, the horror of people losing their jobs and things like that. He said Twitter is an insanely top heavy organization. With, it's, like, it's incredibly overstaffed and really unproductive. It has something like 7,500 employees for the whole thing. And then on top you of that. You don't need that many. For and then on top of that, uh, uh, I saw there's a tweet today or yesterday. A friend sent it to me from Elon saying that there's like 10 managers for every person coding at Twitter. Um, you know, oh, yeah, and, I saw some memes about that. Yeah. Uh, and insofar that's that's true, you know, you know, heads will likely roll and it will be will be pretty big. Right. Um, so yeah, I probably mean, have like 500 people doing DEI or something like, you know, a lot of these organizations have all these layers of human resources and a lot of it is just made up jobs yeah as far as i can tell yeah um but but to get to a more first principle question because i think that's where you were leading us in your initial question um i'm sort of i'm developing this argument in my head i've had mixed feelings about twitter for a long time it's just it's essential for me and my job so i'm obviously biased in that regard i can't imagine living without twitter because I care about ideas, I have things to say, and also sharing articles. And you know, you want people to read your work. Twitter is a major channel for doing that. If I was an ordinary, normal person, maybe I'd feel differently, and I would actually try to get off of Twitter. Um, but more generally, I think I, because I'm someone who thinks, well, let's say Twitter just stopped. Let's say Twitter self-combusted and everyone got off. Yeah. And there wasn't an obvious place to go. Obviously, there's some right-wing social media sites, but most people aren't going to go to them, like Parler or Getter or whatever, and Truth Social. But for a lot of people, especially liberals, I I am a little bit nervous about the idea of liberal elites who are crazy not having Twitter as a place to let off steam. And do we want to test the proposition of what happens when they don't have Twitter as a means to channel their grievances or to put forward crazy ideas that otherwise wouldn't get a hearing in real life? Um, and this gets back to a conversation we've had many times on the podcast, this question of dream politic versus real politic. And we talked to Bruno Bruno Machais about this, um, but I and and I think Ross Doubt that as well has written about dream politic quite a bit. This idea that there's this parallel universe where people engage in radical ideas and radical speech, and as long as it stays cordoned off in the dream world, then you can actually exi you could you can actually have a society that has a lot of that as long as the dream politic doesn't enter into the real world 
And one might argue, and I think this is part of my argument, that Twitter allows this, this realm of dream politic to build and build. And that is good because where, you know, what is the alternative? Like now, now it's possible that things could be better without Twitter, but do we want to actually, do we want to play that scenario out? Because we could be wrong in our suppositions in that regard. I mean, what if it just so happens that if this radicalism isn't channeled through people tweeting and being on their laptops 24 seven, that they're just gonna get more jittery. Um, they're gonna feel more suppressed internally. And then like, do we really want these people to be more active in actual politics? Probably not. Well, I mean, a couple, a couple of maybe pushbacks to that, right? Like, um, I guess, I guess the interesting inversion there and maybe we can pick this apart a little bit, is that, you know, Parler and Getter and whatever, Truth Social and all these things sprung up um, because to, to meet this sort of need, right? On the people who felt like they were, you know, banned from Twitter or whatever. Um, and most people commonly, you know, look at those with a level of um, uh, apprehension, right? Because they, they, they wonder whether, again... <laughs> <laughs> the dream politique, as you put it, uh, being enacted in, in, in these sorts of places is, in fact, building up uh, all sorts of. And it's it's a and, you know, you, you had this even with. Um, oh, gosh, what was it called? Um, that that create those like 4chan and all those like weird bulletin boards. I don't know what what Chan they're up to at this point. There's like tons of these and yeah. creating communities where dream politique is just sort of built and built. And I remember going on to like 4chan and all these others, like the 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 really weird political uh, bulletin boards just to see what it what it is and my god it's so crazy you know people are just writing insane stuff and 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 you know there's just layers and layers of irony uh playing with <laughs> with layers and layers of fascism and and like really nasty stuff and and you know people just saying stuff that's just completely unacceptable just for the the thrill of saying it and going even more and more extravagant and on it and a lot of people look at that and I mean, maybe we can even sort of look at at, at things that 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 I think we've talked about in the, on the podcast before, right? Like radical uh, uh, Islamist communities, and you know, you get you get uh, specialists watching those and and sort of infiltrating them and studying them and worrying about when it's going to bubble out over. So, is what you're saying is that like, why 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 is 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 Twitter not accepted from that? You know, I mean, why is it? Why would liberals sort of venting there? not also be, you know, uh, encouraging the worst sort of impulses among themselves. And largely, you know, I mean, I've always been skeptical that the level of sort of insane wokeness that that uh, was sort of dominating campuses uh, 10, five years ago would actually leak out into the real world. But here we are. It has leaked out. And surely Twitter has had something to do with that. That's one question. The other question is, is, you know, I mean, if Twitter was to somehow implode, as 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 Elon, you know, creates this, uh, makes these pivots and and re reimagines whatever it can be, and it fails. Wouldn't there, you know, immediately spring up an alternative to Twitter? Because let's not forget, you know, Silicon Valley is full of mostly uh, left of center progressive types. Uh, part of the reason why a lot of the sort of conservative websites and 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 platforms are not as good as Twitter is because they just don't have the the technological talent to, to sort of leap into. I imagine already 
there's probably several Silicon Valley projects, you know, anticipating the death of, tr of Twitter and trying to come up with an alternative that would be a home just for liberals. So again, like, I mean, that's the sort of flip side, the other flip side about the sort of, you know, uh, dream politic. Is there something about Twitter being seen as normative and liberals being allowed to dominate this normative space, which makes it seem safer to you? When you talk about, you know, having a space for like letting off steam, does that make sense? Yeah, it does. It does. Look, I think this is a, the people that we're talking about here are highly educated elites who are culturally dominant. Yeah. So it's different than radical Islamists or the 4chan white nationalist types or something like that. Those are people who are on the fringes or dredges of society and you know, that's where online communities can easily spill into violence. I think that just, I don't think that's as much of a possibility when we're talking about people who are obsessed with status. So for them, like violence is not an option. They can support violence from afar as, you know, some unfortunately have done, especially, you know, during this, the summer 2020 uh, protests and then some of the, some of the more violent rioting that happened in that context. But generally speaking, liberals are, I don't see them as a big threat for radicalization. Now, there are like far left people, but that's different because they're less preoccupied with status. Those are people who are also in some sense on the fringes of society, the people who join an Antifa group and, you know, um, go around carrying like staffs in Portland or whatever like that. Yeah. So I think that... Um, you know, it's good that we have a we have a bunch of crazy elites who are hyper educated. Well, maybe it's not great. Obviously, it isn't insofar as their ideas have spread and they have become more normative. So, you know, it depends what you I just don't I just don't know, like, what is the alternative to that? These are people who are going to dominate the media space inevitably. They're they like writing, they type a lot, they're on their laptops, they're hyper articulate, even when they don't have anything interesting to say. So, you know, <laughs> um, I don't know, I don't know. Like, this is not something I've really thought out, but because I, <laughs> I don't know if this is like a conservative idea per se, but, at, you know, I think over time as I've gotten older, I just am always a little bit skeptical of messing with the way things are. You know, as long as we're not in a proper civil war, it probably means that some of our institutions are working sufficiently. And when you introduce an external shock into that context, you could have something better, but you could also have something worse. And I just don't have as much stomach as I used to for playing around with the equation that we're in. Yeah. Because, um, yeah, I guess maybe in that sense, I've become a little bit more small c not I'm not conservative as in like the big C, but the idea that change isn't always good, that progress isn't always inevitable. That's sort of more where I'm at these days, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Twitter well, is the status quo. Why, you know, do we want to mess with the status quo? So, so let me just maybe, you know, listening to you talk there, uh, a different sort of um, metaphor just occurred to me. Um, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm sort of, I've always sort of had that pessimism you're just giving vent to, but I also sort of take glee at watching things just explode that people think, you know, are are holy. And so, you know, one thing I, I think we t 
talked about this early in the podcast, you know, like um, about sort of the idea of um, of journalism being nonpartisan. Um, and, you know, it's funny, just like looking back the last few years, um, and Trump did a lot about this, but, you know, the, the, I, I don't mean to, to insinuate that, that like, you know, journalists aren't committed to a certain kind of ideal of, of, um, of what's it called, uh, impartiality. Uh, but at the same time, a lot of the sort of restraints on that, social restraints on that, I think empowered largely by Twitter, have been removed in the sense that, you know, um, you get journalists sort of opining on Twitter, even though as they're doing sort of, you know, objective work. And, and you know, at the core of it is this idea that I think is the guiding principle of especially a place like the New York Times, that, that they are both a voice from nowhere um, and completely objective and able to do this. And I think that that has been stripped away. Is it good or bad? I don't know. Um, maybe we've lost something, but also maybe we've gained something uh, by having that that piety stripped away. And I wonder if, you know, let's say Twitter as this normatively or at least like nominally neutral space that is nevertheless not dominated by liberals. And you see what I'm getting at? That's It's sort of like the parallel to how we used to think about uh, the media. Um, yeah. That if that pretense gets stripped away, and let's say Twitter implodes, and then quickly enough you get liberal Twitter pops up somewhere, but it can't recreate Twitter with its pretense to being a global, uh, nonpartisan place. But it actually starts catering to to liberals, and so you you have everything that that you've described that is healthy. You get all the sort of center left liberal professionals going on this service, venting off all the steam. They're not violent because they're just uh, uh, status whores and, uh, you know, just uh, get, 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 get a thrill off of that. And it's fine, except now we just don't have this idea that there is anything known as a neutral sphere, which, quite frankly, in reality, has not existed for a very long time at this point. See, I don't, maybe I don't, that, hmm. that healthiness is, maybe there's something healthy in that. See, but I don't think that works for a couple of reasons. I mean, first is that, Liber if liberals have their own space, it's sort of self-defeating because I think the friend-enemy distinction is important here. The only way to know that you're on the right side of history is to know what the wrong side is. And if you take that, if you remove that from the context, liberalism just doesn't really have as much appeal or being a member of the liberal elite. You need to have an enemy. That's what people, I mean, that's what all the status accumulation is. It's about having the right ideas against the people who have the wrong ideas. But if it's just a bunch of liberals talking to each other, I mean, I'm sure they'll find their own internal schisms and come up with something. But I just wonder if that changes the, the dynamic a little bit. But also, the thing about liberal, the thing about like left of center liberals, is that they've never been able to create their own spaces effectively. If you think about all the left of center liberal strongholds, they're all ostensibly non-partisan or not explicitly partisan, like the New York Times, NPR, um, whatever it might be. Um, you know, so there were some efforts many years ago to have liberal talk radio. There was something called Air America that yep. Al Franken was on before he became a senator and that sort of thing. 
but it, it never really seems to work, the idea of a liberal cocoon, because liberals like the idea that they represent, as you said, the voice from nowhere, that they transcend partisan politics, that to the extent that they're ideologically biased, the truth is ideologically biased. So they don't think, they don't think that they're being liberal per se. They just think that they're being right and true. They're just, spe you know, so that's where, um, you know, some people think that's a strength of, let's say, the New York Times. Some people think, think that it's a weakness. But either way, it is very different than how the conservative media ecosystem works, which is much more comfortable with the idea of being partisan, of having a specific ideological edge. And this is something we've always talked about, that left of center liberals, what makes their ideas so powerful is that they offer up a pretense of ideological neutrality. Without that, without the pretense of being neutral, of speaking to the science in, in capital letters, then the whole thing falls apart. It's just not compelling. Totally, totally get you. Let me just twist it a little bit, though. Yeah. Um, so let's leave the New York Times aside because I think the New York Times is a is a is a truly special case in the sense that it is an incredibly well run and successful business that has managed to uh, to just be dominant in the news field in a way that you know the internet and everything it was you know it 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 managed to get around all the the impediments that the internet put in its way and is now incredibly successful with a massive reach. And, you know, it's so big that I think it con contains multitudes. So it's it's a complicated thing. You know, just as an aside, I don't know if you saw the uh, op-ed in the Washington Post, not the op-ed, the, um, it was the sort of media critic, Eric Wemple's piece, doing a sort of a mea culpa on the whole uh, James Bennett uh, uh, fiasco at the New York Times when that editor was fired for- Yeah, just for the uninitiated, oh yeah, yeah, you were about yeah. to say when it, he was just fired, maybe give- yeah, yeah, when he was fired for that Tom Cotton memo and all the kerfuffle that came out from that. You saw that, right? We'll, we'll put yeah, it in, yeah, the, in the show notes. Yeah, but just mention to folks what the Tom Cotton kerfuffle is, just in like a couple yeah, sentences. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, sure. Like, uh, it's, you guys will remember, it was um, basically uh, James Bennett was run out of his job uh, after like a huge uproar uh, among staff at the New York Times that the publishing of a Tom Cotton uh, op-ed was, you know, dangerous to their lives. And basically, James Bennett was hung out to dry, uh, seemingly by, you know, management. Uh, and basically, the sort of, um, I don't know, mob-like tactics of a perhaps even small, but but quite vocal. And I remember talking to friends at the New York Times that they certainly didn't feel it was representative of the Times in any way, uh, but vocal uh, group of, of staffers basically uh, made the entire institution bend. So I, I say all that to say the Times is big and it's incredibly successful. And I think it's a it's a case into unto itself in a lot of ways. Yeah. Um, but you mentioned NPR, and I think that's a really good one because NPR internally probably still tells itself that it's not a, uh, you know, a basically a staunchly center, <laughs> left of center uh, organization publication. They probably uh, say all sorts of things, but it's, it's an absurdity to, to, to even to maintain that, you know, I think in, in, in the, the face of facts. So they exist in their own little sub bubble and they're small enough and, you know, comparatively 
of less reach, I think, and influence than the New York Times. So it's, you know, you can let them have their little fantasy over there. But, you know, in the sort of broader thing, when you think of NPR, you don't think like, oh, impartial organization. You think like, Jesus Christ, NPR. Yeah, those like lefties on the radio. Like, I, you know, it's kind of difficult to listen to often. And so I, 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 um, I wonder if what I'm getting at on the on the Twitter question is exactly that, is that uh, the pretense of an institution like Twitter being neutral and open to all disappearing. And then a bunch of liberals set up new Twitter, you know, and it's uh, uh, basically trying to correct all the flaws of Twitter before. And internally, they, they tell themselves that it's a liberal space that's open to everything, but is, you know, much better at, at, you know, keeping dangerous ideas out, which I think is very compatible with, with the liberal self-conception friend enemy distinction aside. It's, you know, it's, it's pretty much mainstream dogma at this point that there are harmful ideas that, that ought to be deplatformed. Right. And yep. so, so you create this other platform, new Twitter that internally tells itself pieties about, about liberalism, but in fact is just a center left, you know, uh, counterpoint to whatever right-wing things exist in the other. And again, taking all your points about radicalism and violence in stride, but I wonder if that's not healthier. And that's not healthier as a, as a broader thing, that we're destroying this pretense, again, of having a broad open space. And again, within spaces, people tell themselves all sorts of things, but like I think the destruction of Twitter would lead to at least stripping away some of the gauze from, from, these, from these things we tell ourselves about how things work in our country. Yeah, I don't know if I'm thrilled with stripping away the gauze. I mean, <laughs> um, I don't, you know, it's funny that um, on our on our friend group chat earlier, I was, um, you know, I think I made a comment along the lines of, I don't necessarily need to know the truth about everything. I said, <laughs> on some things, my philosophy is ignorance is bliss, specifically, yeah. um there's this app that sometimes people use called Next Door, which is like a cesspool of panic. But basically, um, you sign up and you're able to talk to your neighbors, and the neighbors post things, and usually it's alarmist things like, you know, my dog, my dog disappeared. I'm just making that up. I actually don't know. Is that that's alarmist? People post. No, no, <laughs> no. I guess, I guess, more about crime. Like someone. Yeah. Oh, this, um, this shady, this shady man was like. Shady you know, black man was in my white neighborhood. Yeah. No. Yes. <laughs> yeah. There's definitely sometimes, you know, as as far as I can tell, a racial a racial component to some of this stuff. But um, I don't want to know if there was some like random dude cavorting in your front yard. I like what what. There's no benefit to me of knowing that. Right. I would rather live my life not knowing that. So this idea of being able to see the truth and not to have pretense and to strip away the veneer, do we always want to strip away the veneer? Isn't the veneer what keeps civilization civilization? Yeah, I just I think the veneer is different in that context. When you say the veneer on civilization, it's more like, I don't know pieties about about family and religion and other things that keep those institutions sort of whole uh you know in the face of true human frailty and and you know infidelity and weakness and all the other horrible things that that individuals get up to i i yeah 
I, I, you know, the, 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 the question then is also to, to this idea of dream politique and having a space to vent and just what you're saying about truth. Um, I mean, at least, you know, the, the, the metaphor of the digital public square or like a national space that we can talk is actually the opposite though, of what you're saying. It's not just venting. It's also presumably at least, you know, the metaphor of the public squares where we'd encounter each other. And then, you know, listen to each other and have and some, some sort of productive do. discourse. Yeah. I mean, that's still why I like Twitter. I think there is actually a lot of productive conversation that happens across partisan and ideological lines. I mean, that's how I try to use it. The people who I engage with and learn from on Catholic Twitter or, um, you know, these kind of subcultures where you do learn about things you wouldn't previously have been exposed to. Yeah. Um, and for me, that's been really helpful in terms of understanding how Christians are viewing um, conservative Christians or, or let's say, um, either religiously or politically um, conservative Christians. And those aren't always the same thing. Although I have been thinking about this interesting idea as like a little aside I was at this conference on so on Thursday, hmm. and there was a, a a Catholic theologian, and he kept on making a really interesting reference, and I liked it. He he was talking about other Catholics who he sees as not being necessarily reflecting the true spirit of the church, and he would say like, "Oh, this recent convert to Catholicism that was a political conversion." Hmm. And I've never really heard that before. Like, so when someone becomes Catholic, they're becoming Catholic to signal a political inclination. It's not necessarily about believing in the Catholic creed or upholding it. Um, and I guess suppose Catholics disagree on what that creed is, and that's where you get into a debate about Vatican II. But um, so, and then, and then I was thinking that there was another political conversion um, so someone became Muslim, and mm. I was joking yesterday that this is like a Michelle Hulebeck novel, this <laughs> Christian who becomes Muslim, and I posted this video of Andrew Tate, the the British kickboxer who just converted, and Muslim Twitter, at least some people on Muslim Twitter and Muslim Facebook, were going wild. There's like this whole subculture in Muslim social media around Andrew Tate and people like him, which is basically... Um, people who like Islam because they think Islam is misogynistic and Islam treat that Islam keeps women in the closet or the kitchen in the in their and place so, in any case in their place yeah. and you know oh the Christians are soft they're not manly they're all effeminate Islam is the manly religion they don't actually talk about Prophet Muhammad they don't talk about the classical Islamic tradition. They don't talk about their personal relationship with God. Right. They're like, I became Muslim because Islam is tough. Yeah. So uh, that's, that's straight it, up well back. Yeah, you're right. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. it's just really fascinating. But anyway, I don't even know how I got into this except to say that um, uh, that. Wait, how did I get it? <laughs> I don't know. We're talking about I'm talking about liberalism, Twitter, and like stripping away stuff and the truth and and discourse with with the opposite. I think that's where you were headed. But I don't know. Yeah, yeah, but there's something about the idea of conversion uh -huh. that I think, um, and you, I think you had maybe mentioned the word, I forget, whatever, so it doesn't you, matter. Is it that you need the public square to to, to get that sort of thing? Oh, yeah, like, yeah, to yeah. okay, this that. is, oh, I yeah, sorry, this is headed. how, 
yeah, Catholic Twitter, because yeah, like yeah, a yeah. lot of Catholic Twitter has converts mm-hmm. in these weird um, subcultures that are fascinating from an anthropological perspective. And if Twitter could find a way to encourage those circles, and I think they actually are introducing a feature called circles. Mm-hmm. I think it's beta, beta um, now, but it will probably be launched for everyone at some point. But you can choose your tweets going out only to a particular circle. So then you create like your trad cath circle. So you tweet something that's more like intensely Catholic, and then only the people who you've decided can handle that sort of thing, they're the only ones who see the tweet. That could be a good approach that Twitter, you know, it it still stays as like the mass digital square where most people are um, and, you know, people from across the political spectrum, but then you emphasize more the kind of sub Twitters yeah. Where people can kind of do their own thing. But I mean, I it, feel, yeah. It sounds yeah. like that's what Elon was saying to the advertisers. Yeah, yeah, right. That's exactly. the sort of thing yeah. that he's trying to encourage. But then, you know, um, I mean, the, the question to you then is, is like, you know, you're not a Catholic. Maybe you'll get invited because you've already made your way in. But, you know, let's say uh, I'm sort of anthropo- anthropologically interested in this, uh, but I haven't made inroads into Catholic Twitter. Um, how am I going to get invited into one of these circles? You know what I mean? And it, 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 it's interesting in that sense. Yeah. Then you preserve this fiction of the global public public square or something. But really, it's just the balkanization of the global global public square into, you know, uh, conservative circles versus, uh, you know, liberal circles versus far left circles versus religious circles versus fascist circles, you know, whatever. And then. I, I don't I don't know. I mean, maybe there's a there's a, you know, one cool trick to somehow expose all that in some way while still preserving that thing that people clearly crave, which is an ability to say things to a smaller audience and not have it leak out like what you might say to your friends that you wouldn't say out in public or write in an essay. So I don't know, yeah. you know, like I, it's it's um, I don't think that that model really I mean, I think it preserves, again, the the broad fiction of Twitter doing that. And from a business standpoint, I think it, it makes a lot of sense for for Elon to go there. But it, 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 it doesn't really address this idea of the of the, you know, of the universal public square, which incidentally, I mean, I, I still have some problems. I want to sort of pick at those, uh, whether it's even possible or desirable. But like, you know, I don't know. What do you, what do you think about that before we even get into that? Which part of it? The part that like, you know. Basically, you're you're balkanizing the public square, and you're you're not going to have the public square because everyone will be talking in little yeah, subcircles. But, see, but here's the thing, you know, knowing the idea of a small circle is intriguing, but for as you put it, status whores, I think it's going to be very hard for them to limit their profound insights to a small circle of like a hundred people. Let's be honest; at the end of the day, a lot of these people want attention. They're self-important. So the idea that they would deliberately sabotage their own audience, they might do that for certain things, but they're going to still want the option to broadcast their views to a massive audience. Mm -hmm. So I'm skeptical that it'll ever become too balkanized. Like I, you know, because I don't necessarily, I don't love using Twitter and I feel like I have to use it for my work. I I can't imagine just spending a lot of time on a circle because the reason that I stay on Twitter is because I I want, you know, it goes back to, I, you know, I want to broadcast my views and I, 
And if I want to broadcast my views to a smaller audience, then I say it here on the podcast or I in my Monday note for Wisdom of Crowds, or if I really want to toss off something that is like quicker and that probably that maybe not may not be appropriate for Wisdom of Crowds and that I'm just like tossing it off in like 15 minutes, yeah. then I, you know, I have my little uh, sub stack where I'm only accountable to myself. Yeah. Um, but I'm not, you know, I'm not, I'm only going to use that occasionally, but, um, at least there I have an option like, okay, you, you have these different like ways of looking at your audience and sometimes things will be tossed off and, and that can still be quite good. Like tossing off doesn't mean lower quality. It just means a different kind of format, a different way of writing. Um, but do I need another like, do, does, do I need another sort of Twitter circle to add to all these other media engagements? Like, it's too much. Like, I'm too exposed already, you know? Yeah, yeah. So you, you think if I want to just talk to my circle, it would be like on a group chat with friends, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, I think it's, it's, it's a mistake to think that one or the other will take off. It'll be some sort of melange of the two. Um, but, you know, it's just, it's, it, you know, but balkanization is not, is never you know, complete in the sense that everyone gets their own little nation state and it's tidy. You always have these sort of like gray zones, even in in post-war Europe, that was just like- Yeah, yeah, bloody borders. The bloody you know, borders, still, yeah. You know, yeah. Yeah, and they're still, they're still, they're still sort of uh, pulsing with blood, the bloody borders. Isn't that what Huntington said about Islam? Like Islam has bloody borders or something? Yeah, that might be. That sounds right. That um, was part of Clash of Civilizations, I think. It's been a while. I, you know, I, 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 I reach for it every so often to just, you know, find a passage or two that I remember, but I haven't actually sat down to reread it in, like, I don't know, 20 years, so. Uh, yeah, it'd, yeah. It'd be an interesting thing to do at some point. See, the see that- exactly how it holds together fully. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, the reason that I I can't remember about the bloody borders thing because no one cares about Muslims anymore. Mm-hmm. People care about Islam, but like Islam as a kind of mirror to the failures of Western Christian civilization. But when it comes to, well, I guess in Europe they care about Muslims a lot as yeah. a minority. But maybe I'm just thinking more about the American context where we've sort of disappeared from the. I mean, there's there are a lot of Muslims in the public debate, but we're not a problem the way that we were before. And actually this is, um, this was really striking to me. So in my, in my debate with Mehdi Hassan on Morning Joe uh, the other day, and that clip was, clip went kind of viral. And, yeah. you know, I was just like, wow, like this really struck chord with people for better or worse. And then um, someone on Twitter was like, whatever, you know, whatever you think about who's right in this debate, there's something awesome about, um two Muslims talking about the future of American democracy on national television. Right. And um, and he's like, this is very rare to see because like if there are Muslims talking on national television, usually it has something to do with being Muslim, but that wasn't what we were talking about here. But it hadn't even occurred to me to think that like me and Mahdi going back and forth would be notable for that reason, in part because we've become so normalized that I think we just take this stuff for granted. That is incredible. Yeah. And that shows like, you know, we've come a long way. Yeah, like, integration works. I mean, you're, yeah. you're basically Asian Americans now. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And like, well, here we are talking about our democracy. Like, we're like it's two brown two brown guys and we're the ones who are fighting for american democracy in our view of it and some yeah. race you know some racist people online made 
like I saw a couple of people making reference. Why is it that Matt, like people with the names Mandy Hassan and Shadi Hamid are talking about our in quotation marks democracy? Right. But that's also like what's awesome about it. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and, and the fact that, um, you know, the, the whole like, uh, I don't want to bring up Mehmet Oz again, but I did see there there was an int interesting thing that there was an article about Muslim Americans participating in this election for the midterms. But apparently the article is very striking because it doesn't mention Mehmet Oz. So like mm. the most prominent Muslim American who would be like, you know, the highest ranking um, elected official who's Muslim in American history. Like, it's interesting that it's we're going to start to have this thing where Muslims are erased if they don't have the right politics. Right, that right. In some sense, you're not even a proper Muslim if you're not politically Muslim, which goes back to the whole political conversion thing that religion and politics, like how those two kind of play off of each other. And what does it mean to be a good Muslim, the one who is actually recognized as such? versus one who is erased for not being the right kind of Muslim. And obviously, black folks and Hispanic folks have been dealing with this for a while, that Ted Cruz isn't considered an actual Hispanic. Or Marco Rubio, when people talk about Hispanics, they're not thinking, oh, Marco Rubio, and that sort of thing. Um, it's yeah. interesting, you know, it's interesting uh, how, well... I don't know. It is different from the experience of American Jews, I think. And largely that has to do with Israel. Um, and I, yes, and, and, say more. Well, there's something, you know, I, I, I obviously, you know, I think the, the, the large majority of, of, uh, of American Jews are center left liberals. Uh, but it's not like um, the like right wing Jews in America are erased as Jews. In fact, then oh yes, I see what you mean. Yeah, then yeah, right, you get exactly. all sorts of they're they're the the bad Jews and they're the you know and then all the stereotypes and everything else and all the bad faith gets gets poured on them. So like the Jewish identity somehow hasn't transcended it in America in the way that you're describing potentially uh, American no, Muslim so yeah, communities. Yeah, yeah, that's going. a really good point. And it is yeah, it is because of Israel. Yeah. So if you're if you're gonna be um, an, an American Jew who's right wing is, you know, Israel tends to be like part of the right wing orientation in that respect. And that keeps you so you can be like a right wing Jewish person, but still be very Jewish, I suppose, in a way that Mahmoud Az can be a right wing Muslim, but not be particularly Muslim, like yeah. the, the Muslimness. And it's interesting that uh, Mahmoud Az has been very pro Israel as well. Mm. And so being, you know, so you can be like a right-wing Muslim who's pro-Israel. like. But all this stuff is fascinating how we're seeing a kind of, yeah, a, a kind of balkanization, a, a collapsing within of these categories, which used to be taken for granted. And now they're, they're very complicated and they're becoming more complicated, especially as brown folks gravitate right. And we should probably save that you know, more of a discussion for that for like a proper full on deep dive in an episode. Yeah. But I'm really struck by this. I think this is one of the biggest, I see the signs everywhere. I think it's building. Um, It's a brown rebellion of sorts. Yeah, yeah. And Democrats, I mean, I guess there's been a lot of articles about it, but I think it's really coalescing in a very serious way that is gonna have a profound effect on elections going forward. Um, and you know, we can say this, I suppose, because it's the, it's part two of the episode for subscribers. 
but um the trans issue is front and center on this yeah that yeah. is that is where the divide is it's where it's going to be and there are people who are not going to vote democrat as we speak uh specifically because of that and and the and the various issues that are tied to it as it relates to public education but it it's 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 more and more striking and you know i look if democrats want to self-sabotage electorally, they can, I suppose. I mean, I don't love it. I would prefer that they don't self-sabotage electorally, but I think that's where we're going here. Yeah, let's let's think about a, a good guest for that. I think that's a, that's a, a really good conversation we should have. Listen, I, that actually yeah. is, a, is a good prompt since we are on the bonus. Um, how are your parents looking at the, at the Pennsylvania Senate vote? That's curious to me. Like, to what extent does... Does Oz's uh, identity in that sense matter? Are they revolted by him? Is there some sense of special sympathy? Because your parents are Democrats, I, I, I imagine yeah, more or less. Yeah. So, like, are they are they are they voting basically straight on party lines? You know, I'm even curious how did the how you know there's been so much speculation and again so much mess after that debate where where Fetterman you know seemed uh, you know. Uh, unable to you know answer questions and uh, i don't know i just saw clips of it and i mostly saw you know the back and forth about you know democrats saying oh this shows he's vulnerable and brave and and republicans saying oh my god you know horrible people made a you know a person who clearly can't cope get up on stage and debase himself like that and he's not fit and all the rest of that how's that how's all of that playing out like with your parents who are, you know are gonna have to vote in this election yeah, that's a really good question i haven't i I know that they don't they don't like Oz and I assume that they're going to vote for Fetterman but there's a tension there because I feel like my parents have also become increasingly uncomfortable with um the stuff that the woke stuff yeah the woke stuff yeah. um and I feel like they're they're sensing it in their lives a lot more than they used to like where my mom wasn't really aware of the woke stuff for a long time i think there was a lag effect mm. and now i think I, I think it's something that you can't escape um and cry you know so when it comes to crime be you know living outside of philly and um you know we spend a lot you know when i'm home we we spend a lot of time in philly that's that's sort of you know that's our city in a way um so I think on crime, this stuff is becoming harder to escape, but more importantly, on the the public school curriculum. I mean, luckily my parents don't have to deal with this in a practical sense because, you know, they don't have kids who are in public school um, right now. But um, but I, th I think that's what that's something that they're worried about. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah, yeah. So, how, but but so that's not crime? enough to push them. What? Yeah. Sorry. How's how's crime in Philly? I mean, uh, you getting know, worse. Yeah. You, you you and I were talking again, sort of group chat about this. Like, it really struck me. You know, I've been I've been out of DC for a good chunk of this year, coming back here or there, but n just now being back, I'm really struck by like DC. In the last few days, I'm walking around at night, just feels unhinged in some sort of way. It feels like it's it's careening and like. And, and just more lawless and slightly just not slightly, but like really edgy to the point of like, I'm looking over my shoulder a lot. There's, there's, yeah. uh, um, you know, again, there's, there's a lot of, uh, mentally unhealthy people on the street. Partly it's, you know, there's been problems with homelessness and, and getting people into shelters, but there's some sort of breakdown happening in DC. I mean, is that felt in Philly? Is it, is yes, it similar? But yeah. worse, probably worse. Really? Yeah. So I, you know, I don't want to, 
I want to say too much. Of, well, I guess I can just mention it obliquely, but um, since, you know, it's, well, I guess, well, it's, it's, it's personal, but also I'm aware of it. So it's not like I'm sharing someone's story and it is public and, um, and uh, there was a lot of coverage around it, but um, a family friend's um, son was, was shot and died, was killed. Oh man. About a month ago. Awful. So that was, you know, that was something that we talked about, and um, I, I didn't, I, I didn't know him, mm -hmm. uh, the son, but, um, but my parents did. Yeah. And, um, but uh, yeah, it was like a drive-by shooting. They were apparently like targeting someone in that general area. Good lord. And, um, yeah, yeah. I mean, and, and uh, it's, it's really uh, that's the sort of thing. But like you it just touches more personally. Like I think that more people are having that kind of personal experience with crime or they know someone who's been affected by it. Yeah. And you know, that just changes the stakes. And you hear this, like, I just hear personal stories of radicalization everywhere I go, that people are being red pilled. They are shifting to the right, basically because of two things, crime and gender and sexuality issues. Mm, mm, mm. And it's really, I, I, I'm worried about overstating it because like my general perspective on the trans rights debate was that like ultimately this is not the be all end all. Like we're talking about a relatively small portion of the population, but it's just remarkable to me everywhere I go, like it comes up and it comes up in a personal way. And just another example, in a panel that I was speaking at some time ago and you know we went uh, we went to dinner afterwards, I was really surprised that two of the people we were having dinner with had very direct personal stories about their kids either being non-binary slash gender fluid or coming back home and basically being, mom, am I a he or a she? And I'm not even being hyperbolic. Mm -hmm. I mean, that I'm actually not being hyperbolic enough because I just don't wanna like go into the details of the story. Sure. But, um, but I, I'm surprised because it like is it coincidental? Maybe obviously there's a self-selection bias. If you're talking to people who live in liberal areas, obviously there will be more incidents of this. But the fact that a lot of people that I run into seem to have non-binary kids, um, I have to say, like that that's been interesting to me. Um, or that this is like this is a live debate in the household. Well, and then the, the implication, of course, being that uh, these kids are not and that they're being influenced by broader streams. That's that's what these nominally liberal parents are, are sort of. Well, no, to. well, they're that's not, the thing. They're not There's a divide on that. So yeah. uh, so one of these parents, he he said, look, I was uncomfortable with it um, in the beginning. Yeah. But if your kid comes to you and says that this is the way that they feel. I don't want to push my kid away and I'm going to come to terms with that and accept that. Fair. And so it can go but, both ways. Some people can be radicalized by it. I think But it comes down to the age about, though, yeah. right? Like, yeah. I mean, it comes down to age. If, if the kid's like six and saying this to you, it's different from a kid's like 18 and saying well, this yeah, to yeah. you. Well, yeah, yeah. So yeah, yeah. So that's exactly right. Um, the six, okay. Uh, I didn't know that it it went really young. <laughs> so I mean, oh, I don't know. I, I'm not following. No, no, no. I'm, I'm telling you, like one there. of the people I was talking to, um, her, yeah. So her kid, and she when she was telling us the story, is six, <laughs> um, and ha and has apparently um, 
not just one, but two non-binary friends. I, I honestly am still, still a little bit skeptical, but I have no reason to think that I, I just couldn't believe it. And honestly, there's a part of me that doesn't really understand entirely what's going on. Like when I was six, I didn't even, um, I didn't like have ideas about anything. No. Now kids are coming home at six and they have ideas about their gender identity. Yeah. Like maybe no, I'm mean, missing I, something here, but yeah, like, I, mean, I don't six, remember. I don't remember six, but I remember it was just like, I, I know what made me different from a girl and I like to touch it. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, yeah, yeah, well, yeah, um, okay. <laughs> but that's not like an intellectual position. No, 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 that's it. No, I'm saying, and, and it's, it wasn't even like sexually that. It was just like, oh, you know, whatever. It's like, that's, I'm a boy and that's a girl. And like, not even, it wasn't even like a, like a, uh, at six that I was particularly aware of sex and that like I was attracted to the opposite exactly. sex. It was just like and it wasn't you shouldn't even a category. Have been. Yeah. It's not it's not it wasn't problematized. It wasn't an issue to be yeah. considered. Right. And the fact that we're now it's like a I, the idea that it's a live issue that can be discussed and that there's a number of different answers at the age of six. And also I'm someone who I don't believe that increasing choice is always a good thing for society. I think restricting choice as we know through a lot of you know behavioral economics over the past 10 15 years and we've talked about the paradox of choice and the jars of jam and all that yeah and like we know that this doesn't make we know that this is a dangerous path to go on especially at a very young age where um you know people like you know you're not talking about adults who can kind of consider different options in a kind of I don't even know if adults are capable of rationally discussing things in a calm manner, but certainly a six-year-old isn't. So, yeah. Um, yeah. but, you know, just, I can, you just think about like your traditional Muslim Democrat, this is, you know, and it is actually radicalizing them. I mean, Dearborn is sort of one of the key hotspots in this regard where Muslim parents pretty much revolted at, I think, a school board or a city council meeting, and it got some play in the press. I didn't really follow it closely, but, um, the, you know, this, this Dearborn revolt or, you know, that's going to, that's happening throughout the country. You know, and, Muslim, and, I mean, there's some Muslim parents who are not going to compromise on this stuff. They're going to go nuts. Yeah. You know, I, it's, it's, it's funny. Yeah. So, you know, my, my day job, uh, <laughs> involves uh talking to Europeans about American elections and obviously they're 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 all terrified about Democrats losing and and all the rest of that what that means with you know Republican party being more trumpy what does that mean for transatlantic relations and all the rest of it and so I've been I've been um you know obviously you you don't want to in any written or even sort of verbal predictions like to really go out on a limb and predict anything cuz elections you know it's a deeply polarized still reasonably evenly split country nevertheless you know i i i do wonder uh you know the way the economy is going the you know the incumbent party is uh basically in control at this point so they rightly most voters blame them and this is without getting into all of this stuff and then you know the the other phenomenon which is uh that basically polls have have uh have have miss have been have failed to capture right wing sentiments now for several cycles, and we just saw it even in Brazil, right, with uh, with the first round of the uh, Lula yeah. Bolsonaro election, just like you know, just huge failures in polling. 
Uh, so one wonders, you know, like basically it's it's pretty close at this point and polls some somewhat differ. Republicans are given some looks like they're going to win both, but maybe they win big. You know, just hearing you talk about this, it's not something that's in the I, I really thought about much, but maybe there is this like bigger revolt and it, it could break this cycle. Uh, you know, maybe when there's someone like Trump and, and sort of someone as polarizing as Trump, uh, you know, you get people back in their lane, but maybe that that even more empowers people to vote their conscience this time around uh, and, exactly. and, and punish the, the sort of, you know, the, what they perceive to be the woke party. Um, yeah, like all it, all it takes is, is your kid going to class and like being asked pronouns like that. Like we're not talking about a lot that it takes to radicalize people. Yeah. So yeah. we're talking about like hot button things that if you introduce them, some people are going to freak out. Yeah. And I just don't think that people like, if you think that all this is progress and all of this is positive and you just assume that people through social pressure are going to stay quiet, yeah, they might stay quiet and not fight it very aggressively in a public way. But when they go in the privacy of the ballot box, there could be surprises. And yeah. I think that's really hard to catch in the polling. So so let me ask you a, um, uh, a question that, that <laughs> you you won't like answering, but let me let me yes. ask it anyway. Um, uh, I, do you think do you think that 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 there will be um, a sense of just like disbelief and to the point of 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 rejectionism on among liberals if this election, never mind the presidential one, but if this election goes uh, far in the other direction, or do you think that it'll be? Um, you know, that basically this could cause a kind of cathartic reassessment. I mean, to be fair, seeing the debate among Democrats just in the last week, it feels like people are sort of waking up to that. Again, Bernie was right, and they should have been not doing the social issue stuff, not doing the we are democracy versus autocracy line. So cynical, given that, like, they've basically funded several of the main challengers that are going to potentially win in, in November. But, you know, the 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 uh whether whether there's going to be an internal reckoning or a sense of you know uh just panic and protest and uh further delegitimization of the uh of the electoral process i'm not i'm not saying you know democratic january 6 is about to happen or anything like that but no do you think no look i mean I, I can answer it because we're in the in the privacy of our own home vote. yeah yeah pretty much that's <laughs> what i love about that this yeah. literally right now yeah I can pretty much say whatever I want. Pretty much. Like and no one will be the weird, wiser. Like me making weird pee pee jokes about being a six year old. <laughs> yes. <laughs> anyway. That's what they come for. So um I hadn't actually thought about it being as big of a problem because I, I don't feel like midterm elections, it's as easy to kind of latch upon a delegitimization narrative because mm. some Democrats will win and some Democrats will lose. So I, I don't think you can have like a national reaction the way you can with a presidential election. That said, I have to say that I've been somewhat struck by the rhetoric used in the lead up to November 8th, including in my debate with Mandy Hassan, and we'll include a link for those of you who haven't seen it. Or basically, I, I, I try to put, you know, I, I put Mandy on the spot and ask him because I think it's an important question. You know, would you accept the, the election results if if Trump wins fair and square, no foul play in 2024. I didn't even think to ask him about the midterms more specifically, but of course we're having this discussion in the context of the midterms and voter suppression efforts in, in a place like Georgia came up. Um, and you know, if you watch the clip, you'll see 
that Mehdi says that black people are denied the right to vote. Yeah. And I, 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 I act, I don't act surprised. I was genuinely surprised. That wasn't me. Like I was confused that he would use that kind of language. And I don't think that language is appropriate because yeah. it does, I think, play it. It sets the stage for future delegitimization. If you're kind of, and you, we've seen this for a long time. Like if George, like let's say Democrats are pummeled in Georgia. Yeah. What is the reaction going to be in light of all the discourse around voter suppression? I mean, to be fair, Stacey Georgia. Abrams was engaging in this before, and she seems to be yes. setting the stage for that again. Yeah. So I mean, but but she is sort of an outlier. I mean, Hillary Clinton has been saying insane shit about you know yeah. stop the steal and and shits and weird stuff. But again, it's I have Hillary heard Clinton that she point. said crazy things. I haven't followed it closely, but yeah, look. I think that um, it's going to be a good test. It'll be a nice little dry run for how people react to what is probably a, a better than likely Republican victory in 2024. If I had to think about odds, I'd say it'll be close. But if I had to wager, unfortunately, I think that a Republican will have a somewhat better chance of winning. Of course, it all depends on who the Democratic candidate is. Yeah. About like we don't have great options, you know uh, what I'm talking yeah, about. I, you know, I, it's I, two years is a long time, and I mean, so yeah. much. To, honestly, even even this thing right now that's happening, and you know, I take all the 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 sort of culture war stuff and the crime stuff, and but really, I think that that what people end up voting on is the economy, and if the economy is doing much better in two years, I think Democrats' chances are a lot better in two years. I mean, it's it's not all materialism, and this stuff does play into it. But I think the, the big driving force right now is that just like people feel poor and and uh, and under stress and, you know, you're going to blame someone and you're not going to blame the party that's out of power for that at this point. Um, yeah. You know, like yeah, yeah. so. Maybe, I, well, you're a bit more of a materialist than I am. I am. I am. I am. But I, I, I do think that's a huge driver of this. And this was something where, again, where I think, you know, the Bernie's of the world. And now, I again, like I said, I feel like some Democrats are waking up to this and, and talking about, you know, uh, about the situation right now saying that that yes the the global situation is terrible don't forget there's a war going on and you know we still haven't really recovered the sort of global economic system from covid and republicans are not to be trusted with the keys to the car at this mo moment because they'll take even more away from you that's smart messaging and they're not doing it right um so yeah. I, again one can imagine all sorts of ways that maybe the the sort of not the the bernie wing of the party like but basically the more sort of i don't know materialist wing of the party the more economist wing of the party that that talks about bread and butter issues rather than uh than social issues and like democracy versus autocracy issues at a time of like economic pain is able to actually make a good case to to stay in power you know um, i do wonder though because so much of our debate is nationalized i just wonder i don't have a great sense of this but you know, all politics is supposed to be local, but we're obviously in a media landscape where everything local is nationalized too. Yeah, yeah. So I just wonder, are voters able to take a step back and focus specifically only on what the person in their race is saying? Yeah. Or are they voting, are we becoming more like, it's not so much the specific person you're voting for, it's you're voting for a party. Like, yeah. And I yeah. think that, you know, ultimately that's still the way I view voting. I mean, you know, I, like, I wouldn't vote, like, would I vote for someone like Mehmet Oz um, if I liked him? Or I'm just trying to think who's a compelling, like, 
vaguely moderate or not. Well, I mean, I guess. Well, well I don't know. I How don't about even the guy know. in Virginia? The guy in Virginia, the the that one, uh, the governor. Um, he seemed nice. Glenn Youngkin. Oh yeah, yeah. Glenn yeah. Youngkin. But look, but and and I don't he know. was and yeah. he was running on on like sanity on all the issues you're saying, sanity and radicalizing people. Yeah. So I don't know. Would you vote I, for that? You know, it's an interesting test. Like, what would I have done? In that race, if you were living, in I wouldn't Virginia, have been yeah. able to bring myself to vote for Glenn Youngkin. Interesting. Interesting. I couldn't do it. I would. So I would I probably have either. That. You could have easily. I think so. I think I could have easily done that. Yeah, I guess there's still something lingering there, man. I don't know. I can't yeah. do it. See, I, I could, I, I, I'd without compunction vote for a sane Republican. I think. Uh, <laughs> I, it doesn't, well, it doesn't but it's also me. he's voting, but but he represents a party. And I know that people will be like anyone who's seen my media appearances recently will be like, well, Shadi doesn't like pay, like he doesn't seem to care a lot about this. But ultimately, because I do think the Republican Party is worse on respecting Democratic outcomes, that's a big consideration for me. I'm not willing to vote for anyone who is going to represent a party that could be rejectionist if Democrats win in 2024. Um, now, obviously, if Democrats Democrats lose, they could be rejectionists. But still, like when push comes to shove, Republicans are worse. Okay, if we have so, to make a yeah. But but I mean that's actually you know a, a pretty close step to arguments you've made in your 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 recent uh, TV experiences uh, appearances, right? Like in the sense that I mean, on a personal level, you're not saying that 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 the Republican Party should be uh, you know banned from from elections because. Um, whatchamacallit, if we really thought they were a fascist party, not like a, a semi-fascist party, but a real fascist party, then, uh, you know, there's a case to actually ban them from elections. There's a lot of precedents for democracies banning actual fascist parties from elections. And you've argued against uh, your interlocutors saying, well, if you really believe that they're fascist, you would advocate for this. Are you advocating for it? But on a personal level, you're basically making that case. You're like, I will not vote for any Republican, even if they are not rejectionist in their rhetoric. Because I actually think that the entire party is, in fact, semi-fascist or even like, you know. <laughs> no. <laughs> well, look, um, I think you were I think you were more or less on the right path until the last thing you said. No, I don't think they're semi-fascist at all. You can be you can be not willing to respect democratic outcomes and not be semi-fascist. So this is also an issue I have with a lot of people will say, well, look, Republicans believe X, Y, Z, and these are all bad things. Therefore, the semi-fascist label is appropriate. But there's nothing inherently fascist or semi-fascist about having difficulty accepting democratic outcomes that you mm -hmm. don't like. This mm -hmm. is a universal thing. And we just tend to use the word authoritarian or yeah. not committed to the democratic process. Fascism is different and it yeah, means okay, something. Yeah, fair. That's fair. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, but like, but so, what but it's said. interesting. You would not, you, you, you'd still couldn't vote even for a Republican that you know, uh, in the in the campaign, dodged questions, no doubt. Youngkin dodged questions on on uh, Trump, but he did uh, say the elections were fair. But he would always sort of, you know, on the edges fudge to not alienate too many voters. Yet, by and large, you know, uh, he seems to not be a rejectionist. And you would, because of party affiliation, you you'd at least worry about voting for someone like that merely because of party affiliation. That would Even be my if, primary concern. Like, I don't know what I'd do at the end of the day in a particular local context if I was very exercised about a local issue and I had kids in public school or whatever. Yeah. But it's interesting because I haven't actually, maybe I just haven't thought this through. Like, what what will I do in my future voting life in specific situations? Mm. But um, 
Yeah. All right, Shadi. Well, this was good. <laughs> getting the getting the, the the rust off the off the machine. It's been a really long time. So uh, always good good chatting. Wait, you just. <laughs> I mean. <laughs> You just cut me off. Well, go ahead. I was just going through. I was just kind of oh, like. Oh, you were going to actually muse on it? I thought you were basically saying that, that you're going to muse about this in a future episode. I was talking about my future life as a voter. Yeah. Okay. And I was. No, I'm Tell kind us of. more. No, no. no. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I look. Look, we, we're actually not on network TV or anything like that. There are no time limits. We can we can talk about your future life. No, it's like funny. I just hour. felt like a little bit hurt. I felt like, <laughs> oh my god, Shaddy is like in the middle of a sense. He's like, oh, uh, bye, Shaddy. Oh, um, oh good sorry. talking that, to you. That's that's called that's called the rust in the machine. I would never do that if we were if we were more oiled oh, up. Oh man, wow. But that was, this was a good episode. I really yeah. like this. is This is a good um, kind of you know we're back on track and back on track. Stay tuned, folks, yeah. for uh, for what is to come. Indeed, indeed. All right, Shadi. Talk soon. Bye. Bye, Namir.